morning, uh, we're continuing our series uh, called The True King through the book of Mark. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Mark chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, didn't bring one with you, need one for the house, whatever that, uh, the case may be, there are some Bibles in the back of the room. Feel free to go and grab one of those. You can grab one right now. No shame in that. Uh, nobody's going to judge you, especially me. Just go grab one of those Bibles so you can follow along. Uh, if you're joining us online, welcome. We know we still have several uh, people who join us on the live stream, either because of health reasons or, or whatever else. And so we're, we're glad you are with us uh, again today. So Mitchell got to talk a little bit about the Braves. I would love to talk about a little bit about the Braves today, right? I'm pretty excited about the Braves. Uh, J John Zila's uh, office building is like right next to the parade route. So uh, Friday, got the kids. We parked in his uh, deck at his office, walked over for the parade, just cheered, 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 loved uh, seeing Dansby Swanson celebrating. I don't know if you guys caught it in the, uh, in the uh, ceremony, what Dansby said, uh, but I loved he looked at the crowd and said, I've been waiting 26 years for this too. Uh, because you know he grew up here, went to Marietta High School right down the road, and I just thought, how many times as a kid did he dream about hitting a, world, uh, a home run in the World Series so the Braves could end their 26-year run in his backyard right up the road. You know what I mean? Like right up the road. And, uh, and that was pretty incredible to see. And uh, so Dansby, I know you follow us on the live stream too. So uh, Dansby, Mercy Hill Church is really proud of you. Good job, hometown boy, winning a World Series for us. Uh, so uh, it's also... Fall back Sunday, uh, and Bo told me uh, in the lobby today that means I get to preach for an extra hour. So buckle up, let's go. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. We're gonna look at Mark chapter seven. Let me let me pray for us. You pray this along with me uh, before we open God's word together. Father, today may we see your word with fresh eyes and open hearts, and may you speak by your Spirit to us so we can understand it. Amen. Amen. All right, Mark chapter seven. 31 it says this, then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee to the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers in his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue and looking up to heaven, he sighed. And said to him, Ephathatha, which that is, be opened. And his ears were open and his tongues were released and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Here's what we're going to do today. Three simple things. First... We want to see in this passage something about the character of Jesus. So if you're taking notes, the first thing we're going to look at is the character of Jesus. The second thing, we're going to look at the kingdom of Jesus, see something unique about the kingdom of Jesus. And then thirdly, we're going to see Jesus' purpose in this text, overall purpose. All right, you guys got a little roadmap for today. I normally don't do that, but uh, it's fallback Sunday, right? So we're mixing everything up a little bit, right? All right, here's what we see. Here's the setting. 
You remember last week we saw Jesus goes to a place of Gentile, a Gentile region in Tyre. Uh, he meets a woman there, heals her daughter. Now he's come back on one side of the Sea of Galilee, this place called the Decapolis, which just means 10 cities. So a collection of cities who are in a Jewish area but have been settled mostly by non-Jews. And so this area is kind of a mixture of both Israelites and people who are not Israelites. What we see in verse 31 and 32 is there's a crowd of people. Most scholars think that the they means just people from the area. People from the area get together and they bring, bring to Jesus a man who is deaf so he can't hear and has a speech impediment. And so he's been living, we don't know how long, with the inability to hear other people and something obstructing his ability to communicate with others. And they are begging, begging Jesus just to lay hands on them and to do something, to intercede on his behalf. And this is where we find the first thing that I want to show you about Jesus' character. If you're taking notes, write this down. Jesus, the true king, is tender towards us in our suffering. You see this in the text, verse 33. He takes the man aside. In other words, what Jesus is doing is he doesn't want the guy who's always been the spectacle to be the spectacle anymore. He's not turning this guy into a marketing campaign. This isn't something for his Instagram camp, uh, uh, post, an Instagram post. Instead, what Jesus is doing is saying, I know you are so used to when you walk into somewhere having everybody's eyes on you, so let's go somewhere privately. So he pulls him aside privately, removes him from the madness of the crowd, and then verse 33, he put his fingers in his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. That's gross. What's going on here, right? We didn't know Jesus is into wet willies, right? Like that is not exactly what's going on here. Here's what most scholars think. They think that this is a form of some sort of rudimentary sign language. Now, do you see the tenderness in this moment then? Here is this man who for years and years and years doesn't know what's going on in a crowd. Even when people are talking about him, he's the last one to know. Even when people are having a discussion, making decisions about his future, he's always the last one to know. He doesn't ever get told what's going on. Instead, he just has to see what's going on. And so here's Jesus, the true king, in tenderness, taking a moment and going, here's what I'm about to do for you. I'm going to unstop your ears, and I want you to understand I'm going to loosen the obstruction of your tongue. I am going to bring you healing. You could think about how meaningful this must have been for the man. In this moment where he feels like everything is on the line, that Jesus himself takes the time to say, I, I want you to get every single thing. We're not going to make a spectacle out of you. We're not going to do this in front of everybody else. It's just you and me, and I want you to understand what's going on. He has struggled perhaps his entire life to be able to communicate what he really wants. And here's Jesus going, no, I get it. I know who you are. I am here for you. Matthew talks about this in Matthew chapter 12, this tenderness of Jesus. He actually quotes from Isaiah 42, and he says that Jesus is this guy that Isaiah talked about. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So Isaiah is talking about this coming Messiah. Matthew says the coming Messiah is Jesus. And here's what Jesus is like. A bruised reed, 
a, a reed on the verge of breaking. Jesus is so gentle and tender, he's not going to break it. Or a flame that's about to be extinguished, Jesus is not going to put this out. This is uh, an illustration. Let me bring it to like modern day, all right? Any parents out there, elementary school kids? You, you, you've seen this before when your kid comes home with a clear plastic cup half full of soil and then like a sunflower or a lima bean or whatever like sticking out. You know what I'm talking about? And can you imagine? What is the teacher thinking, right? Here, let's grow some plants. Now it's time to take the plant home. How is the plant going to survive? Out of the classroom, into the hallway, everybody's jostling around. You get on the bus. You, then you have to ride on the middle school bus, which I imagine has been a long time, but not like a pretty tender experience, right? And then you got to get off the bus, and then you got to get it home. And if you're in the Nichols family, by the time you get it home, that's the danger zone, right? We don't exactly have green thumbs in our household. Like if you bring a plant home, it's probably going to die. In the little plastic cup, a little bit of soil grown in school, they all die. Here's the idea about Jesus' character. That you and I, in our most tender, broken, on the verge of everything falling apart, that Jesus in character is tender. That his goal is not to crush you in your time of need or suffering. He's not here to break this man down or expose him. Instead, he wants to get on his level, communicate right to his heart, and do something incredible for this man. This is good news for us today. At your lowest point, in the middle of your pain and suffering, Jesus is tender. For some of us, this is a complete shift in mindset. This belief that at our lowest of the lows, sometimes we think that God is against us in those times. But that's not the character of who Jesus is. A Bruce Reed, he does not break. I, uh, years and years ago, bought this book by Brennan Manning. It's a pretty good book. The, the name of it is The Relentless Tenderness of Jesus. It's probably the first time I ever interacted with this idea that Jesus was tender. That there is a, he says relentless, meaning a, uh, a compelling, overwhelming tenderness to who Jesus is. Uh, but there's something interesting. I, I uh, grabbed this book off the shelf uh, earlier this week because I wanted to just kind of make it fresh and I remembered reading it and enjoying it and so I kind of was flipping through it and um, I had forgotten this. I bought this book used and in the back cover are hospital visitor passes from the previous owner of this book and this written is the date and on one, it says second transfusion. And on the one below it, it says a third transfusion. Now, I don't know what the transfusion was for. I don't know who owned this book before me. But here's what I do know. That the tenderness of Jesus that I hope and pray this person found in a moment of suffering, sitting in a hospital waiting room, hoping their loved one was going to come out okay, is a tenderness that you can experience as well. That in the middle of our suffering, Jesus is present. And at our lowest point, he does not want to drag you lower. Now we see something else here. 
There's not only in suffering, but Jesus, the true king, is tender towards us in suffering and in our hardness of heart. Now, to understand this, we're going to have to pull back to the context of Mark. Now, you remember all the way through Mark, for those of you who've been with us on the journey, what has Jesus been commenting on over and over again? The hardness of people's hearts. In fact, after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus looks at his disciples like, why don't you get what's going on here? We just saw last week that Jesus is, or two weeks ago, that Jesus is critical of the Pharisees because of the condition of their heart. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Mark gives us this little detail in verse 34. Looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephathatha, that is, be open. You see that word, he sighed? The Greek there is like grief or mourning. And I think for sure Jesus is mourning the condition of this man. But I think more so, Mark is pointing out this in the story for us to see that Jesus is mourning that the kingdom has not yet arrived. That the grief is over, not just that there are people who physically can't hear and physically can't speak, but the grief is much larger than that, that he is surrounded by person after person who is seeing the king and not getting it, not able to understand. That this is in some ways a metaphor of the entirety of the people, that Jesus would be here but they would be ever perceiving and not understanding. Chapter 8, actually in Mark, kind of serves as like a quick overview. It's almost like a highlight. It's going to give us some more stories, but the stories kind of put together everything that happened in the past seven verses, So, or seven chapters. So in Mark uh, chapter 8, verse 17, it says, And Jesus, aware of this, said to him, this, this is the disciples, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you, do, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? See, I think what Mark wants us to understand about Jesus is his tenderness extends to people who also just don't hear the truth. A longing for people to respond despite their hard-heartedness. Which is why we've seen him in the book of Mark take time with the Pharisees, even in those where he's been tough, but always an invitation for them to respond in faith. Why over and over and over again he's taking time to explain parables to his disciples because despite the fact they're not hearing or understanding the word, he wants them to know it. And so we see also Jesus' tenderness even towards people who are hard-hearted. It's a thing, I, I, I'm not sure how recent it is, I just saw it on Facebook a couple weeks ago, I, see, I saw it a couple times, but uh, where people are getting tattoos, have you guys seen this? So, uh, uh, Judas 8-2, have you guys seen those? People are getting these tattoos, Judas 8-2 on their arms, and here's what the idea is, is that even though Jesus knew that Judas was going to portray him at the Last Supper, he still extended an opportunity for him to enjoy the meal and even washed his feet. 
So the idea behind the tattoo is this amazing act of tenderness and grace by Jesus, right? That Jesus would be so loving and compassionate and tender and gracious that even knowing the hard-heartedness of Judas who was to betray him, he invited him to the table, which is an amazing picture. But, But I wonder if that picture of grace also doesn't come with a warning for us. You see, from the outside looking in, for everybody else, Judas would have looked like maybe you and me. Good dude, great with money, successful career, follower of Jesus, with Jesus for three years. Like, he goes to Bible study, he does the whole thing. Church attendance would have looked on the surface like a really good dude. Judas heard message after message from Jesus. Judas experienced grace upon grace from Jesus. Judas saw healing after healing from Jesus, and yet still in the hardness of heart rejected him. And so there is this warning for us too, that in Jesus' tender grace towards us, it is possible to see it, experience it, have a front row seat firsthand to the entire thing. Worship on Sunday morning, open the scripture, daily quiet time, the whole thing. Bible study, belong to a missional community, serve for hope for Christmas, every single bit of it, and yet still reject Jesus. But Jesus, even in the hardness of our heart, is patient toward us. So he sighs. And praise be opened, looking at the heavens, praying that God would intervene on behalf of this man, and he does. I I love, uh, a a lot of us have been reading together Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly. I know we gave it out a couple months ago. I hope you've read it. But he points out in um, Hebrews 5, chapter 2, this verse that he, Jesus, can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. What Dane points out is those two phrases, ignorant and wayward, means just two different type of sins. That ignorance would be um, uh, unknowingly sinning. You ever, ever done that before? Just accidentally? Not the plan? You guys are really great, right? You've never done that? I've done that. Okay. And then wayward would be willfully or rebelliously sinning. Disobeying God because I made a choice at a particular moment that I was going to do this. And what, what Ortland points, points out, which I think is really amazing, he says, so then what this text is telling us is that Jesus is gentle toward all of it. Not just what we stumbled into, but what we decided on. Not just what we fell into, but we're out of rebellion, decisions that we made knowing full well that it was wrong. And that Jesus is tender and gentle even for us in the middle of our sinfulness. Which is good news, guys. Unbelievable news. That it means not just in your suffering, in the hospital room or driving home after you lost a job, does Jesus not want to break you? But even at your lowest moment of volitional sinfulness, 
at the hardest your heart has ever been, Jesus wants to be tender towards you. We don't think that way, right? We think, oh, no. At the worst of me, I got I to gotta knock it up a couple of rungs on the ladder before I come back to Jesus. But that's not the picture. Now, here's what happens. Verse 35, his ears are open, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. It's a miracle, right? Verse 36, and Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed. So we learned something about the character of Jesus. Now we learned something about the kingdom. Here's what we learned about the kingdom. In the kingdom of God, people hear the word, people understand the word, and people speak the word. You see what happens? This guy who's never heard the word hears it. This guy who's never spoken speaks it. These people who are for, foreign to Jesus' work until this point in the story, Mark, hear the word, receive it, and they go proclaim it. And here's what Mark wants us to know. That's what the kingdom's like. When we are whole physically and spiritually in a way that we receive the word from Jesus, we understand Jesus' word, and we proclaim it. It is a beautiful picture of the kingdom. That the kingdom of God is full of people who have tender hearts to hear and understand, to respond by proclaiming. I love that, that adjective, zealously. It's not a word we use a lot. But it means passionately, like a passion with, with purpose, right? And they're like, no, 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 you can tell us to not tell people about what we saw, but we're going to tell, tell people because we're passionate about it. We want people to know the goodness of Jesus. We have to tell this story. So how does this all happen? How does Jesus deal with our suffering and our sin? How can Jesus be gentle towards us even in our hard-heartedness? How does Jesus actually solve all of these issues? How does he interact with where we are? I think Mark gives us a clue. Verse 37. When he says, They were all astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. They're talking about Jesus. This is the crowd. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. What Mark is doing is actually quoting from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35, Isaiah writes, Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong and do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be open." And then the ears of the deaf unstopped. So here's what is happening in Isaiah. People of God are going into exile because of their sinfulness. Isaiah is giving them a promise that God himself is going to save them. He's going to show up and do incredible things. And Mark is going, that thing from Isaiah, the blind here, he's actually about to tell us a story that we're not going to see about a blind man regaining his sight in Mark chapter 8. The deaf speaking, hearing, speaking, the blind seeing, the deaf, the deaf hearing. All of that is happening. Why? Because God showed up. This is who Jesus is. God in the flesh. He came in person. He came near to us. But there's something missing from Mark's account. 
See, Isaiah says God's going to come with vengeance and with divine retribution. And so Mark wants us to start asking this question. Okay. The deaf hear. The blind see. Jesus has come, God in person, to rescue his people. Where's the vengeance? Where's the divine retribution? We don't see it, right? All the way through the book of Mark, we don't see Jesus acting in vengeance. He isn't trying to gain or grab political power. He isn't judging people with a sword. We don't get Jesus smiting people. Then what's happening here? Is there no judgment for the Romans who are occupying Israel this time? Is he not going to kick them out? Is there no judgment for Israel, the Israelites who've rebelled against God? Is that, what, what, why is this missing? But remember Mark chapter 8. Remember I told you in this context, it kind of highlights everything. It's like a crash course in the book of Mark. All happens in Mark chapter 8. Jesus, we see, feeds 4,000 people. He provides abundantly for his people. We've seen that before in the book. Jesus, again, in Mark chapter 8, compares his kingdom to the one the Pharisees are pursuing. We've seen that all the way through the book. Again, Jesus presses his disciples to understand, just as we've seen all through the first seven chapters. Jesus heals a blind man so that people who don't see are now seeing. And then something incredible happens in Mark chapter 8, we're going to get to next week, that Peter, one of the disciples, confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. He is who Isaiah 35 is about. That's Peter does that. And then and only then in Mark chapter 8 verse 31 Jesus starts to teach them about his future it says he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again you see what Mark is doing he's saying if you're looking for vengeance you're going to find it at the end of the book if you're looking for divine retribution, where you're going to find it is at the end of the book. That Jesus is coming in a completely different way. That Jesus came, yes, opening the eyes of the blind. Yes, Jesus came so the deaf can hear. But this is what Tim Keller says. He says, and he didn't come to bring divine retribution, but to bear it. And that's what Mark wants you to see about Jesus' mission. That this Savior, in his tenderness and love and grace, didn't come to punish you for your rebellion and sin. He didn't come to drag you down in the middle of your suffering. He didn't come to bring vengeance on you. Instead, he came to absorb God's vengeance and retribution on the cross. So Mark chapter 7 where is it? Mark chapter 8, Jesus says it's coming, but it's going to be directed at me. At the end of the book of Mark, we get the story of the cross. Where Jesus bears the punishment for sin in your place and in my place. You see, in this story, this is God's way of saving not by forgetting about our sinfulness, not by minimizing our sinfulness, not by ignoring our sinfulness, 
And also God's not going to save in this story by unleashing, uh, unleashing a fury of judgment on the people. Instead, God's way of saving is by bearing the full weight of judgment on sin himself, Jesus on the cross. And so this little story about healing is actually a story about the kingdom. The character of Jesus, this tender king, this coming kingdom, and how you and I become partakers of the kingdom by trusting in Jesus the Messiah, God in person, who came to pay the full penalty of our sin for us in our place. Spurgeon says this is Jesus at his most tender. This is what he says. Jesus, our Lord, is tender by nature. Admit the, admit the bliss of heaven, he foresaw the miseries of earth and resolved to leave his glory that he might come here to rescue man. His innate tenderness brought him from the throne to the manger and from the manger to the cross. This is all good news for us today. Let's think about it in three different ways. First, let's think about it in terms of the good news of Jesus. And I want you to know that this good news of Jesus is for you today. That if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you've never embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the good news is no matter what you think about Jesus or maybe what your experience with church has been, that Jesus does not want to break you. That Jesus in his tenderness actually laid down his life for you in your place. That Jesus does not intend to minimize the wrong that you've done. That Jesus does not intend to sweep it under the rug. But he has, in his tenderness, provided a way out of that for you by his own death and resurrection. And so for some of us today, maybe today's a day where we believe or trust in the gospel. For some of us who've been followers of Jesus, then maybe what we need is to live in the gospel. Christian, like, don't miss this. This means that this past week, when you willfully sinned against God, in the words you used towards your spouse, the thing you did to your roommate, what you watched or absorbed from a television or a computer, the malice of competitiveness that you showed at work, whatever it might be, the time where you got in your car and you said, I can't believe I just did that. Here's what Jesus doesn't need. He doesn't need you to earn his favor back. Instead, in his tenderness, he is near to you even in that moment. And so instead of feeling compelled to run, 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 run away, we as believers can draw near, near, near. Even in the very moments after the act of our sin. 
those could be moments of worship for us. Where we go, I am tempted to be overwhelmed by guilt, but here's what I know. Jesus is tender and gracious even to the guilty. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to pray and ask Jesus to forgive me right now in this very moment. You see how this could change our perspective in an unbelievable way? What does this passage have to say about our community? The way that we live with each other. I love Brendan Manning says, the relentless tenderness of Jesus challenges us to give up our false faces, our petty conceits, our irritating vanities, our preposterous pretending, and become card-carrying members of the messy human community. Jesus calls us to be tender with each other because he is tender. Can you imagine what, how this would change our community? If instead of, as soon as someone is in the middle of suffering, we rush in in order to break them down, instead of, what, what if we had the spirit of tenderness, like Jesus, where we sat with people in their pain, where we were sympathetic to what they were going through? What if in our community, we didn't condemn people for their sinfulness? What if we said, I'm not breaking you down here. I am with you here. And I'm in this messy community too. And so I'm going to walk with you. Now, notice what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we call what is wrong right. And I'm not saying we call what is evil good. But I am saying that we all have experienced the tenderness of Jesus in the middle of our sinfulness, and it would lack gospel faithfulness to demand something else of someone else. It could be transformative to our community. And it could also change the way we live on mission. That we could, like the people of this story, be so in awe of Jesus, his tenderness and his goodness, his power and authority, that we can't help but proclaim what he has done. We can't help but say, hey, I know you don't know Christ, but let me tell you, man, at my lowest moment, the way I got through it was Jesus was with me. And that might not make a lot of sense to you, but I just want you to know that it's true. At the bottom of the bottom of my sinfulness, what I found was Jesus. And friend, no matter what you've done, I want you to know that Jesus loves and draws near to those who have sinned, the ignorant and the wayward. Could you imagine a group of people so saturated in the gospel, a group of people like us, who've experienced this tenderness of Jesus, living it with each other and inviting other people into that. That would be a pretty powerful community of faith. Because you know what it would be? It would be the kingdom. It's in the kingdom we hear the word and we understand it in the heart of who we are and then we proclaim it.
Let me pray for us. Father.